the National Archives podcast series, Prison, 500 Years Behind Bars, presented by Edward Marston. Welcome to prison, ladies and gentlemen. It's always nice to have a captive audience. I'm going to talk about prison over four, five, six, seven hundred years, specifically in this country. And the piece of paper you have in front of you gives you a rough idea of the structure both of the book and of the talk I'll give this afternoon. Uh, imprisonment of various kinds goes back to the dawn of time and all civilizations used it in, in various ways. Uh, the first recorded mention of it in uh, England is in fact in the law code of Alfred the Great, which is the ninth century. As you know, he was the king of Wessex, which was the sort of south and west of Britain, and spent a great deal of time fighting with the Danes and eventually came to a composition with them and allowed them to have Dane law, which was north and east, while he had the south and west. And he introduced a, a, a particular clause in his uh, law code, which went as follows. If anyone pledges what is right for him to carry out and leaves it unfulfilled, he is with humility to hand over his weapons and his possessions to his friends for keeping and to be 40 days at a prison of the king's estate. I mentioned the Danes. He actually then, having beaten the Danes in a battle, built a number of fortresses around there, and within those fortresses would be the prison, as it were, which wouldn't be a custom-built prison. It would simply be a dungeon or a holding centre. The next person we come across is King Knut, C-N-U-T, correct spelling, you all know him about standing in front of the waves. King Knut had a very elaborate law code, and when he took control of this country, and of course he ruled the whole country, not just uh, Wessex, he decided that he would introduce for the native people here what he called gentle punishments. Let me give you some examples of gentle punishments. Mutilation, castration, whipping in public where you were tied to a cart and whipped around the town until you were bleeding, uh, and the stocks and the pillory were in all of the town. Now, the stocks are fine because you put your legs in and you're stuck there for maybe a day or two, but at least you can defend yourself. The pillory doesn't have that. And pillories were made by one carpenter who didn't work for Clark's shoes and gave you a, p a particular fitting. It was a one-size-fits-all. And once you were locked into it, you couldn't move for however long your sentence was, which meant people could throw things at you. Bricks, sticks, stones, dung was very favourite, dead cats was another favourite. And you might find that being put in the pillory was another word for a death sentence. Uh, a few weeks ago we were in Malta and I went into the pillory just to amuse the passers-by and... It was built 400 years ago, so it was for a much shorter human being. So I would have been standing there like this for a long time. Somebody who was even shorter would have been doing this for maybe a day and a half. So just being in there, being immobilised, was, as I say, the uh, most appalling thing, and you were just a target for everybody. Women suffered even worse. I mean, they were stocked and pilloried, uh, but they had all kinds of other unpleasant things including, if they were skulls, being paraded around the town in what was called a cathedral stercoris, technically um, a shitting chair, an early form of commode. So it was highly embarrassing to be sort of taken round and, and, and laughed at by everyone in there. Men and women also, of course, both suffered ordeal by fire, which meant that you had to either plunge your hand into a fire or carry some uh, iron bars, which were red hot, um, and then at the end of it, if your hands uh, recovered after a certain length of time, you were deemed to be innocent. If they didn't, and of course 99% of them didn't, then you were guilty and you'd have one of his gentle punishments, which was possibly having your hand cut off or branding of some kind, or another favourite was nose slitting. Sodomy, incidentally, was punished by burning, and if it was bestiality, both you and the animal 
were also burned, which I think was a little unfair on a chap who just might have been grazing quietly in a field. When you come to William the Conqueror, he moved in and wanted to establish a much stronger uh, law code, and the two ways he did this was through castles and churches. And the first castle he built of any significance, of course, the Tower of London. He was never happy in London because it was a place that didn't welcome him, so he had this huge citadel built there to kind of keep everyone in awe, and then it was built by successive Norman kings uh, and enlarged. But the most significant appointment he made, I think, was putting Archbishop <laughs> Lanfranc in Canterbury Cathedral. Lanfranc was not a Norman, by the way, he was an Italian. Brought over, put in charge of Canterbury Cathedral. He was horrified to arrive and find the monks were under strength. There were only about a third of the requisite number, that most of them drank every night, and most of them had wives or concubines or both. So the first thing he did was to have the uh, celibate rule put back in, and he brought in uh, the, his constitutions, and in there was a most interesting bit because he said, let us have prisons which can be controlled by the monasteries or by bishops. So in other words, you have an ecclesiastical wing of the prison system as well as the, the royal wing. The person who really systematized the whole thing was Henry II. Uh, we're talking about the 12th century, 1154 to 1189. When he came in, he had a famous um, meeting with his barons um, at Clarendon, the Assize of Clarendon, and he decided, uh, if you want to look this up, it's, it's Clause 7, and in several counties where there are no jails, let such be made in a borough or some castle of the king at the king's expense. That was a wonderful phrase, the king's expense. So everywhere, every county had to have one place which was a sort of royal prison. Now this was fine if you lived, say, Gloucestershire, where you had a county town with a castle which could be used. But if you were in Berkshire or Wiltshire or Somerset, counties which even today don't have a really big central thing, then you had to come to sort of imaginative arrangement with the local sheriffs as to where you put your various people. The features of medieval imprisonment, when I say medieval, we're talking about 1066 up to the arrival of the Tudors in the late uh, 15th century, are as follows. Prison was not the punishment. Prison was a holding centre. You were put in there until your case came up, and the real punishment was what happened afterwards, which could be far worse than being in prison, frankly. Secondly, alongside royal prisons, there was a whole clutch around the country of municipal prisons. Now, these were privately owned by lay barons or by ecclesiastics, and they had no income at all from the, uh, the royal exchequer, so they had to pay for them themselves. Now, all they were enjoined to do was to keep the people in custody. They had no money and no obligation to provide food, clothing, or anything else. So what did they do? The simple solution was to charge the people being put in there for everything. So you were charged for your clothing, your food, and whatever. Which brings us to the third point, there was a social gradation. Wealthy people did quite well. They could be kept in honorable confinement, maybe in a room of their own, maybe even allowed to see their wife or their mistress or whatever. But most people were slung into a common ward, and worst thing of all, they were all fettered. Because these prisons just were run by two, three, four people, you had to immobilize the prisoners, and the heaviest ones went on the common people, obviously. You paid to have them on, and you paid to have them taken off. So you had cases of people who went in to uh, await a trial, came out from the trial, were acquitted, but couldn't pay the money that they owed to the jailer, so went back in again. I mean, it was an awful situation. Torture was used on spies, political prisoners, and those who defied the established religion. The worst of all was called strong and heavy punishment. Uh, Edward I, uh, Longshanks dreamed this one up, uh, and 
The rule was as follows. The prisoner should be kept in an airless, damp dungeon, naked except for a loincloth stretched out on his back, and iron weights placed upon his chest increased each day. First day, three morsels of rotten, coarse bread. The second day, a draught of water from the stagnant pool next to the prison door. No spring or fountain water allowed. The third day, three morsels of bread, and then alternate days of the same diet until death supervenes. Once you decided you were not going to answer the accusation and went mute, it was started. If halfway through you decided, oh, actually, it wasn't me at all, I have an alibi, too late. Once it started, it could not be stopped. So pressing to death was one of the most dreadful parts. Fifth thing about uh, medieval prisons, women were treated with a special harshness. You won't be surprised to learn. If a man killed his wife, that was homicide. If the wife killed the husband, that was called petty treason. And the sentence for that was to be burned alive. Many women did that, suffered that. Indiscriminately, they were hanged, uh, as with the men. And uh, skulls, or shrews as we call them, had this thing called the branks, which was almost like a helmet coming over with an awful mouthpiece that went in and held the tongue down, so it was impossible for the, the woman to... Uh, to speak, and that would be worn for a certain length of time. Now, we all know the play, The Taming of the Shrew, um, and in that, uh, Petruchio starves Catherine into submission. It's not a play that's very popular with audiences today for obvious reasons. Uh, there is a ballad contemporaneous with, with the writing of that play called The Taming of a Shrew, in which the husband does rather more than starve his wife to death. What he does is take her teeth out one by one with a pair of pinches. That was a fairly standard thing in the late medieval period. The other thing about medieval prisons, just to finish, was they were visible. They were bang in the middle of the town, they were the biggest structure of all, so you were standing cheek by jowl. You always had something as a deterrent there, because you knew if you didn't behave yourself, that in you would go, and sometimes you wouldn't come out. I used to live in Canterbury, and would always go in through the West Gate, because the West Gate was used as the prison, and they've still got the old barred windows through which people would put their hand, because they weren't fed. The only food they could get, the only money they could get, was by sticking their hands out to passers-by. Uh, you can now go in and actually look around that. Uh, I'm sure Jim and Amy, who live in near Canterbury, have both been there. When we come to the great jails of London, the first place to start was a wonderful poem by a man called John Taylor. John Taylor was a water poet. That meant he was a waterman. He rode from one side of the river to the other uh, and wrote this appalling doggerel, as you see in a moment. He was also a great rater. They used to have a rating contest where people stood up, literally two of them. Instead of fighting, they would swear at each other and he was reckoned to be one of the best. The watermen of London were famous for the foul language. If you didn't tip them, you got an earful which would last for a long time. Anyway, what he said of the great jails of London was, in London and within a mile, I ween, there are of jails and prisons full 16, and 60 whipping posts and cages, where sin with shame and sorrow hath due wages. For though the tower be a castle royal, yet there's a prison in it for men disloyal. And the tower built by the conqueror, to act as a stronghold, was also many other things. It was a menagerie there, it was the royal mint, it was the home of the crown jewels, and it became the place of execution. And it's really under the Tudors that it comes into its own. Uh, Henry VIII, as you know, decided that he'd rather be the head of the Anglican Church uh, than uh, bow to the Pope, and so the Act of Succession was passed in 1534. Uh, his subjects were required to acknowledge the act and to acknowledge his supremacy. Thomas More, who had been his Lord Chancellor, one of the greatest jurists in the whole of Europe, refused to do so. And as we know, if you've seen the play uh, A Man for All Seasons, he finished up in the condemned cell. And he, 
Not far away from him was the Bishop of Rochester, John Fisher. Again, a man of tremendous loyalty who'd given wonderful service over the years, but he could not acknowledge an act which, from his point of view, attacked the supremacy of the uh, uh, of papal power. And so he too finished up being executed. In fact, he was supposed to be hanged, drawn and quartered, quite the normal thing for traitors, which literally was being hanged, taken down while still alive. Uh, your intestines were drawn out while you were still alive, and then you would die at some stage in that process, and then cut into four halves, and the quarters sent to four parts of the kingdom. Uh, Fisher's sentence was commuted, and in fact he was beheaded. So he came off lightly. Anne Askew was an interesting person. She was an extreme Protestant, married by force to a man she hated, went round the street giving out banned books and so on. So in 1545, she was put into the tower. And one of the few women we know of who was uh, tortured there. There was a very gentle and kind constable of the tower at the time, and he just could not stand the idea of a woman being uh, tortured. So the king sent in Henry Risley, who was his Lord Chancellor, and uh, Richard Rich, uh, who was the Attorney General. And this is what she said of what actually happened. Then did they put me on the rack, because I confessed no ladies or gentlewoman to be of my opinion. And thereon they kept me a long time, and because I lay still and did not cry out, my Lord Chancellor and Master Rich did take pains to rack me with their own hands, till I was nigh dead. Then the lieutenant caused me to be loosed from the rack, incontinently I swooned, and then they recovered me again. She was burned at the stake in 1546. She was 25 years of age. Uh, the brief and inglorious reign of uh, Edward VI, 1547 to 53, of course, had a, another throughput of Catholics. But when Bloody Mary came in, we really had full-time work at the Tower because she seized on Protestant extremists and destroyed so many of them that they became Protestant martyrs. And a man called John Fox, F-O-X-E, published his famous Acts and Monuments, known as his Book of Martyrs, and they all featured Anne Askew, for instance, is in there. And when Queen Elizabeth came to power in 1558, she made sure that a copy of Acts and Monuments was placed in every church in the country, so they could all see what would happen if you went back to Roman Catholicism, which of course had been espoused by uh, Mary Tudor. In Elizabeth's reign, there was a man called Richard Topcliffe, who proves the point I've made many years, that sadism was not invented by the Marquis de Sade. He was the most appalling man who refined the arts of torture to such an extent that he dismissed the rack of the tower, went home and built his own, designed his own, and the really dangerous prisoners, the Jesuits in particular, would be taken to his house, first of all to be shown the instrument, because you might get the confession before they were even laid out on this, and then he would rack them there. And he used to boast that the one at the tower was like child's play compared to his. Just to give you one example, I won't go into detail, but part of it, you could pull a lever and you could break every finger on one hand. That was the sort of man he was. In fact, he became so noted for his cruelty that he was imprisoned himself, uh, then released, given a huge pension, and would you be surprised, became a member of parliament. McClink <laughs> uh, is the oldest prison in London, built in uh, 1127 in Southwark, on the left bank of the river. And what's interesting about that is that that land was owned largely by the Bishop of Winchester, which meant that all the tenements from which the brothels operated were owned by him, so he had a rent. So prostitutes were called Winchester geese, and that went on for centuries. And it was only when Henry VII came in and cleared up the brothels, because uh, VD was spending at uh, an alarming rate, uh, that his income went down. So the bishop was doing rather well out of uh, uh, the sins of the flesh. It usually handled prostitutes, but it also dealt with lots of debtors. 
Just along the way, also in Southwark, was the Marshalsea, famous from Dickens' time, of course, when, if you've been watching Little Dorrit, most of it takes place in the Marshalsea. And again, um, whenever there was a riot or any kind of public, the, the first thing to happen was they tore down the prisons, these symbols of authority. So in 1381, the Peasants' Revolt, they tore down the, the Marshalsea. Uh, in uh, 1450, Jack Cade's Rebellion, they tore it down. Immediately, of course, it was rebuilt. One of the most famous prisons was Newgate, a royal prison administered by sheriffs who sold the management to successive keepers, all of whom maintained corrupt regimes. They had no income for doing this, so they got the money from the people inside. Uh, one keeper, William Arnold, early in the 17th century, uh, was actually caught raping one of his uh, female inmates. Uh, gradually, people convicted of really serious crimes tended to go to Newgate, and that was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1666 and then rebuilt. Just down the road was the fleet on the fleet prison by the Fleet River, the stink from which was so overpowering you could hardly uh, take it. And that again took in people from uh, various um, uh, smaller prisons who were in for debt. Now, debt is a rather touchy subject at this particular moment in time, I know. Uh, we had a thing called credit. It's the same thing, but it sounds nicer if it's credit. Most of us in this room, I suspect, would have been in prison in Elizabethan times because if you have a mortgage, which you can't pay instantly, in you would go. Dickens' father, remember, owed £40. That's all, and he was put in because he couldn't pay it. So you have that vicious cycle where you're sent in because you can't pay, you rack up costs while you're in there, addition to the, pay the payment outside, and off you go. People who were sufficiently high socially, of course, didn't pay anyway. Robin Dudley, the Earl of uh, uh, Leicester, who was great favourite of Queen Elizabeth, when he died, he had debts running to £15,000. We're talking in modern terms, we're going up to millions there. His funeral cost another 4000 so basically the debts he left were £19,000 or again into six figures. An extraordinary things that you could get away with it if you happened to be the Earl of Leicester, but if you were further down the social uh, standing, uh, then you couldn't. When you come to look at the Elizabethan and Jacobean dramatists, this bit is not in my book, incidentally. I put it in because my friend Bob Hamlin over there is a theatre director, and uh, he, uh, he will probably argue with what I'm going to say. There was an immediacy about crime and about imprisonment uh, there. You saw it happening all around. So someone like Thomas Kidd, who in 1588 had the most successful play of that whole period, uh, the Spanish Tragedy, which was, if you like, the slumdog millionaire of the day. Everybody went. It stayed in print for 40 years, which was very, very rare. Unfortunately, Kidd shared rooms with Christopher Marlowe, whom we know, as well as being a playwright, worked as a spy, and was also an atheist, and had left some of his atheistical writings there when the place was raided. Marlowe was away, Kidd went into prison, and he was tortured so badly that he never wrote anything of significance again. He wasn't the only playwright to go in. Ben Jonson went into prison twice. Once for killing um, a man in a duel. Dueling was illegal and obviously homicide was illegal. He was sentenced to death, but there was an easy way out for people like him. If you could recite a part of the Bible in Latin, you escaped the hangman. It was called neck verse. Now, Ben Johnson went to Westminster School. The classics master at Westminster School was Thomas Camden, the greatest classicist in England. So if you've been taught by him, he just looked at it and rattled it off and was released. Before he was released, he had the letter F for felon imprinted on his thumb and he used to boast about it in the uh, places like the, the Mermaid Tavern. Look, boys, I've been in and I survived. The next time he went in was for writing a play, or writing part of a play called The Isle of Dogs, which is not extant, so we don't quite know what was in it. But it attacked certain people of importance in the government. 
you have to remember that censorship was very, very strict there. Every play before performance had to go and be read, and you had to pay five pounds, a lot of money, to have it read before. It was so playwrights like Shakespeare, who wanted to use political material, realised it was much easier to move it back into time, to Roman times, and say things about Elizabethan government or Jacobean government in terms of what was happening in Rome, and you got away with it. The Isle of Dogs didn't. It was very direct, it was very personal, and Johnson and a few other people involved in that particular play were popped away. Thomas Decker, like most playwrights, he ran short of money, finished up in the poultry compter, and couldn't believe the amount of noise that went on. People were fighting all the time, they were yelling for tobacco, and they had a couple of people there who running, were running a campaign against tobacco. So you either had the lot saying, don't smoke, and this lot over here saying, we need more, whatever. It really was an appalling thing. And if you look at Shakespeare's plays, he weaves imprisonment into so many of his plays in various ways, not necessarily in terms of a prison. Obviously, in uh, Richard III, we've got two visits to the Tower. First of all, we have the Duke of Clarence killed. False, fleeting, perjured Clarence, if you remember, was killed by being dropped into a battle of Malmsey. Uh, I know one or two people who might enjoy that kind of end to their life, frankly. Battle of Malmsey being sweet canary wine. And at the end of the play, of course, we have the princes in the Tower killed if indeed they were. You know, the proof of that is not, not uh, convincing by, by any means. But when you look at a play like Richard II, we finish up in prison again in a castle and the king is assassinated. Then we have Midsummer Night's Dream, when they're all the major characters are imprisoned in a spell for comic effect. But from their point of view, they have no freedom of movement. Basically, everything is preordained. So that was another form of imprisonment he, he used. In The Tempest, we have Prospero and his daughter imprisoned on an island. In As You Like It, they're exiled, which is another form of imprisonment. They're stuck in the Forest of Arden, listening to the old duke saying the same thing time and time again, you know, and uh, living in a sort of um, prison situation. Twelfth Night, for my money, has the cruelest imprisonment in Shakespeare, because poor old Malvolio, who is a fool and he's very arrogant and so on, but the punishment is out of sync with the crime, I think, because he's put into a darkened room and convinced that he's mad and Feste dressed up and comes along with a topaz, as a priest and tries to sort of cure him in inverted commas. We know that he's not going to be sent off. But the worst kind of imprisonment in the period I've talked about was imprisonment in a madhouse. Because once you're in there, if you weren't mad when you went in, you very soon were. The conditions were so appalling. And as comedy, we uh, have to watch Feste really making poor old Malvolio suffer. And he comes back at the end and says he'd be revenged on the pack of them, but we never get to see that revenge. The most interesting Shakespeare play from the point of view of imprisonment, I think, is Measure for Measure. The only one which is specifically about justice. And there's a speech in that by Angelo, uh, which could be in the Elizabethan equivalent of the Daily Mail. What he says is, we must not make a scarecrow of the law, setting it up to fear the birds of prey, till it keep one shape and custom make it to their perch and not their terror. In other words, flog them, hang them, and keep bringing in more laws to uh, whenever they find a way around them, we have to kind of stop that. It's set in Vienna. In fact, of course, it's set in Southwark. And all the diseases and the corruption of Southwark is there in the text. And Vincentio, the Duke, um, instead of cleaning up the mess, decides to go away and leave it to Angelo. And the name tells you he's a, a man of angelic disposition. And he's uh, described at one point, you know, a what may man within him hide, though angel on the outward side. And he's given the awful job of cleaning this place up while the Duke nips off, disguises himself as a friar, and comes back to watch things going on. And the main thing he has to get rid of, because it's the area of brothels, is this endless promiscuity. So anyone who conceives a child, or anyone who fathers a child, outside marriage, 
is popped in. And a gentleman called Claudio, whose girlfriend becomes pregnant, even though they're betrothed, and it was quite normal to sleep with your person beforehand, think of Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway, before marriage, Claudio is put in prison and is convinced he is going to die. And again, it's one of the cruelest things in Shakespeare, I think, when the friar, Vincentio, comes in and tries to persuade him that death is a good thing. Don't worry about it, he says, you know. Always think on it as a positive thing. And he gives this, it's the best speech in the play, trying to convince him. So that's a play entirely about imprisonment, the nature of imprisonment, and we see scenes in the prison where the person running it is the provost, who is the kindest person there. Why were people sent to prison for these things? Well, here's the thing I've, I've taken at random from a calendar of assize records in the time of Charles II, 1660 onwards. Arson, assault, begging, bigamy, buggery, burglary, illegal burial, falsifying baptismal entries, despoiling churchyards, embezzlement, extortion, forgery, unlicensed selling, highway robbery, homicide, infanticide, larceny, perjury, recusancy, coining, rape, riotous assembly, scandalous or lewd living, smuggling and Sabbath breaking. For any one of those things, you could be sent to prison. Most of them, of course, are offences against property. And the people who passed the laws were the people who owned the property, which is why 80 to 85% of people in prisons tended to have been um, thieves or people who uh, attacked and despoiled property. When we come to the 18th century, we look at Newgate as symbolic of all that was wrong with the prisons. Filthy, overcrowded, disease-ridden, run by corrupt men. In 1700, the deputy keeper, William Robinson, actually used to bring prostitutes in at night. And the men could pay either to go into the women's cells at six months a time, or pay for the prostitute to come into their cell. The women who were visited, incidentally, very often encouraged this, because if they could get pregnant while they were in prison, and they'd been sentenced to death, they would have their stay of execution. It was called pleading the belly. So you very often tried to get someone to make you pregnant in order to extend your, your life. So you had ordinary people competing with the people who were brought in from outside the prostitutes. Prison was also a university crime. If you didn't know much about crime when you went in, then someone could teach you. And here's an example. This is a man called John Hall, writing in 1708. Memoirs of the right villainous John Hall, the late famous and notorious robber, penned from his mouth sometime before his death. In the boozing ken, the students, instead of holding disputes in philosophy and mathematics, run all together upon law. For such as are committed for housebreaking, swear stoutly they cannot be cast for burglary because the fact was done in the daytime. Such as are committed for stealing a horsecloth or a coachman's cloak, swear they cannot be cast for felony because the coach was standing still, not stopped. And such as steal before a man's face, swear they value not their adversary because they're out of reach of the new act against private stealing. Thus, with an unparalleled prudence, every brazen-faced malefactor is hardened in the sin before the law can touch his life. In other words, if you talk to one of the old lags, they could tell you exactly how to defend yourself. The total lack of hygiene and the crude sanitary conditions you can imagine made for jail fever. There was a famous occasion in 1750 when they were taken from Newgate into the prison, in, into the court of the Old Bailey, and the disease was actually on their clothes and on their hair. As a result, 60 people died, including the Lord Mayor of London, the ex-Lord Mayor, uh, two under-sheriffs, uh, several of the jurymen, and many of the other people. And from that point on, and I'm sure you've seen pictures of this, the judges always took a nosegay of flowers to ward off the stench of things. That's why you see photographs of them carrying a little bouquet as they went. As a result of that, they tried to reduce overcrowding, and they actually put a windmill in the middle of um, uh, Newgate to introduce some kind of, uh, of ventilation. But the big event of the 18th century was, of course, the execution. 
and you were sent to Newgate, which was a sort of holding centre, and then you had the famous procession, all part of it. It was really a big carnival day. You went from Newgate all the way down to Tyburn, um, down by Marble Arch, as we now know it. It was a long thing. It was lined by huge crowds to be cheering or occasionally booing, and these men were sort of... They had a spurious glamour, these great gangsters, especially if they were the Jack Shepherds and the um, Captain Kidds and, and uh, Eugene Aram um, and Jack Wilde, the most famous of them all. Um, and when you got there, you had an enormous crowd. Just think of a football match, except it had women and children. It also had people selling pies and various things and lots of booze there, so it was quite a volatile crowd. And, of course, because it had people, it had criminals there. It had pickpockets, it had prostitutes, all sorts of people taking advantage of the crowd. And... The hangman of the day were not, well, let's just say it's not a perfectible art. They were usually bunglers, they were usually drunk. So all sorts of awful things happened. If the drop was too long, you took the head off. If the drop was too short, the person basically twitched away as he was slowly strangled. And wiser people got their friends to stand underneath the scaffold, and the moment the legs came down, they jumped and they pulled, and that's where we get the phrase, hangers-on. Hangers-on were people who dispatched you rather than leave it to the hangman. But your problem wasn't over, even if you were killed, because over there would always be surgeons from the uh, hospital who wanted corpses for dissection. So your families very often had to fight off these people. If it was an old uh, person, no problem. But they wanted young, healthy bodies, obviously, which they could dissect. So that was another element in it. Some of the grotesque scenes, which you will find in my book, I, I, I won't tell now, really are sort of uh, terrifying. When we come to John Howard, we come to the first major champion of penal reform. In 1773, he was made High Sheriff of Bedfordshire and was horrified to learn that the keeper of the local jail had no income and was basically squeezing every penny out of the poor people inside. So he went back to the Board of Guardians and said, give this man a wage. They said, no, we don't, we don't do that. There's no example of someone having a wage in the whole country. He said, I'll find one. And if he could find a precedent, which he did, he went all around the country and all around Europe and produced his famous report on the jails of England and Wales and little bits later on in appendices about jails. And the one place he really enjoyed was Holland, where the jails were clean, better managed, and uh, actually thought about what was going to happen when people came out at the far end. And he tried to introduce that as best practice. His name lives <coughs> on in the Howard League for Penal Reform, I worked in a prison in 1962. The first day after I came out, I joined the Howard League for Penal Reform. So if you go into a prison like that, appalling conditions uh, would be see, seen there. It cost him £30,000 of his own money. Again, in terms of modern currency, we're talking about perhaps a million pounds of his own money to, uh, as a philanthropic gesture, just to do all this on behalf of people for whom he had no particular... I should say he had a personal interest. When his first wife died, he decided to go on a little voyage... The voyage was interrupted by pirates and they held him in custody for a certain while till he was released. So he knew what imprisonment was. He knew what it was like to be in chains and to have people telling you when and what to eat. Well, that's John Howard, one of our really great things. We now come to the Hulks and by a strange coincidence, we have a young lady here who's come all the way from New Mexico who is doing her master's thesis on the Hulks. So I'll be careful what I say. It seems a strange thing for someone from New Mexico to be interested in, but it was one of the great horrors Transportation had been used for a long time in the 17th and 18th centuries as a way of getting rid of troublesome convicts. The best way to do is send them abroad to Virginia or the West Indies. After a while, they refused to take women 
only men. So in fact, you had to pay to send the women, whereas the men would go and you'd get some money from the people at the other end. In 1776, of course, Jim here, our American friend, will tell you the American War of Independence began, so suddenly they didn't want any more of our rotten convicts. So they had to find somewhere else. And that eventually became Australia. But while they were thinking about that, they put people in these old disused vessels, which were men of war from maybe <coughs> 40, 50, 60 years, dreadful, rotting away, full of rats and so on, stuck on the Thames, uh, on the Medway, and in other places. And people were put into them into the most appalling conditions uh, imaginable. Many people died while they were in there of various diseases. They did have a hospital ship, but in order to get there, you had to convince the surgeon on your ship that you were uh, a legitimate case. They also had schooling. They also had um, religion of a kind. They're two remarkable men, and if you're interested in a 19th century prison, you must read a book by uh, John Binney and Henry Mayhew, just called The Criminal Prisons of London, uh, written in the 1850s, which is the most amazingly exhaustive study of the period. And they went on board the Defence, one of the uh, prisons, prison ships, and saw the horrors uh, that took place there. Just as an example of what people had to do, I'm going to read you something. This is actually one continuous sentence, and the spelling is appalling. This is what one lad wrote home from uh, a vessel called the Euralis in uh, 1829. Dear mother and father, I have taken the earliest opportunity of writing these few lines to you, hoping to find you in good health, as it leaves me at present, thank God, for it. And I have received your kind letter, which you sent me, and I was very happy to hear from your dear parents. My poor brother Solomon is no more. He died last Monday week at half past four in the afternoon, and the good captain let me see him on Sunday when he was alive, and he also let me go to his funeral. Signed by... John Edwards, who was nine years of age and whose brother was 11, they had stolen a piece of cloth worth five shillings. John Edwards finished up in Australia. Um, people much younger than John were sent over there and people much older. We had people in their 70s and 80s um, sent over. They would be kept in chains in these appalling places. One of the worst places to go, in fact, was Bermuda because there you were moored in filthy mud, hot sun, perfect breeding ground for vermin, um, the first thing that they noticed, wonderful sun, limestone rocks, with the sun coming off both the water and the rocks. Most of them are half blind. In fact, several of them completely blind by the time they, they, they came back. Um, they had scurvy, they had all kinds of diseases, and a particular um, disease wiped out 160 of them at one point. So being sent to the hulks was one of the worst possible things uh, that could happen to you. And the same regime of cruelty, maladministration, bad food, poor living conditions, corruption, violence, desolation that existed in the English hulks carried on there. Uh, the hulks, as our friend here will no doubt agree, was a terrible indictment of uh, prison policy in this country. Now in the 19th century, even in the pre-Victorian times, there were people who had just won this war against a man called Napoleon and the huge French army, so they felt they could do anything. So when they decided to build a new prison, they first of all had a report, and then they came up with a prison called Millbank. And Millbank is where Millbank is now, where the Tate Gallery is. Uh, it was an enormous prison, and the idea was that it was this huge fortress which would frighten people as they went past. Eventually, it took a thousand people. Um, it was finally opened in 1821. There were problems. The first problem was size. It was built on a moderation of what was called the Panopticon. Jeremy Bentham, the utilitarian, designed a prison which was huge, a huge cylinder 
which meant that if you stood in the middle, you could see every one of the single cells from one position. The modification here was that they had a central hexagon with the six wings going out. So standing here, you could see on this radial pattern everything. That's basically the pattern of all Victorian prisons. I've been in three of them. They've all been exactly like that. You can stand there and you can just look down the different corridors. The real problem was the size. There were three miles of corridors. The warders themselves couldn't find their way around. They actually used to put chalk marks on there to see where they'd been. They possibly used breadcrumbs to find their way back. I mean, in those conditions, identical cells, endless circular staircases. The other problem was the architect had forgotten to look at the land, which was marshland. So immediately you had a damp problem, and within two or three years you had cracks in the walls, and in 1823 and 1824 there were scurvy outbreaks, which killed off various people. So that was not one of the great successes. Mayhew and Binney write it off as a complete failure, and they blame the fact that the governor, a rather naive gentleman, also happened to be a clergyman. But in their manufactory, they produced all of the clothing for the other prisons, for all the convict prisons where people did hard labour. Pentonville, 1842, is the really typical uh, Victorian prison on the radial pattern. Uh, early discussions about the design were between three people. But if you look at the records, you'll find that Captain Joshua Webb, Jeb, of the Royal Engineers, is the sole architect. The other two people complained bitterly, but Jeb was very good at getting himself into the front rank of these things, and eventually went on to become one of the titans of the prison system. First of all, he ran all the military prisons, and then he was the chairman of the board of directors of all the prisons in this country. And his contribution throughout the 19th century is mammoth, if you happen to agree with his ideas. And his ideas were twofold. First of all, we have isolation, single cells, and secondly, we have silence. So people all go into one cell, and they're not allowed to speak to anybody. They can reply to a warder, but they can't speak to him directly, otherwise they get punished. Punishment, we're talking about flogging, or being put in a straitjacket, or losing your food, or all sorts of uh, other unpleasant things. Now this system is perfectly designed to drive people mad, and several people did, unfortunately, uh, go mad as a result, and attempt suicide, and so on. When you went for exercise, you wore a mask, so that you couldn't see who else was in prison with you. So you might be walking in a circle with your brother, or your uncle, or your father, without realising that they were in the same place. Cunning prisoners did get around this in various ways, obviously, particularly in chapel, where, again, you were locked in a single cubicle, and the only person you could see would be the parson up in his pulpit. But there were ways, drilling holes and things, and making contact with the chap next door, passing uh, messages. But as I say, for most people, it was a dreadful thing. Every prison was built on harsh discipline, and the people who ran them were usually ex-army or ex-navy, people who were used to the military ethos where you had instant obedience. So there was no messing about. And there was a scandal in Birmingham prison, which where I used to work. Um, in 1854, there was a young man who was treated so harshly that he killed himself. Uh, he was called Edward Arnold. And this is what the report said of him, the Royal Commission appointed to inquire into the treatment of him. He had the straitjacket last Sunday morning for two hours. It made shrivel marks on his arms and body. A bucket of water stood by him in the case of exhaustion. He stood with cold, red, bare feet on a rock soaked in water. The ground was covered in water. He looked very deathly and reeled with weakness when liberated, too weak and jaded to be taught, and could only be talked to, always, when talked to, always appeared wild. His crime, talking and using obscene language, 
was also threatened with trial before magistrates. So this man had sworn at one of the warders, so he was straight-jacketed and suffered so much physically he couldn't actually cope with the, the pain. Uh, lots of people went mad, as I say. Many tried to think, and many of them, having come out, were recidivists who went straight back in again for another. Religion was an important part of the regime, and if you read the book by Binney and uh, Mayhew, you'll find that they pay particular attention to that. Uh, when it comes to women, of course, they had a champion at the start of the 19th century called Elizabeth Fry, who was the John Howard equivalent, who was a Quaker. And in 1813, two friends came in. They'd been to Newgate. They were appalled at the state of the conditions there. Women with children were living in rooms where some were on bunks, some were sleeping on straw on the floor, which was ranked with urine, menstrual blood, and even afterbirth, because they never cleared these things out. Uh, the kids were unclothed. So Elizabeth Fry got a group of friends with a capital F, all Quakers, and they sewed for hour after hour. Next day, they went along to the governor, said, let us in. He said, you'll be killed if you go in there. These are feral women. They went in, and because of their Quaker dress, they were accepted, and they gave the children clothes. It took them three days, in fact, to clothe all of the children there. But they earned respect. Elizabeth Fry continued to go in and improve circumstances. And then, if you read her diary, there's a very nice little passage there where she says, my husband was very tender in the night. Well, nine months later, we get the result of tenderness, and she has another child, which means that for 18 months, she wasn't going into Newgate. When she went back in, she started a school, she formed an association for the improvement of women there, and she got them working and actually making things which they could sell, which gave them self-esteem. And when they had an inquiry into prisons in 1818, she said three things are important. One is religious instruction. And of course, she always prayed with them or read to the Bible, from the Bible. You must categorize the prisoners and make sure that they're not all put together. If you the more serious ones go over there, the old lags, and the new younger ones who may have just had one offence must be given there. And you must have small groups so that you can't have any kind of uh, moral turpitude, was the phrase she used, spreading. And thirdly, they must have employment to give them money. And one of the uh, people who was writing the postscript to that particular report does say that she was a true heroine, uh, and much of the uh, advance that was made must be ascribed to her personal unremitting um, attention and influence. Uh, one should say that she was a bit like Miss, Mrs. Jellaby in Bleak House, that while she was spending all the effort on these people in Newgate, she was neglecting the family at home. Mrs. Jellaby, as you may remember, is the lady who sends money off to Africa and her kids are starving. Um, so there is that element, and she knew of this. She did, you know, she was her worst critic. She realised that by devoting herself to prison reform, somebody would suffer. When we come into the 20th century, we've got the suffragettes coming along. Now, it seemed extraordinary to me that people were quite happy, men throughout the whole of the Victorian period, you know, in 1837 onwards, are quite happy to forge a great empire for a queen and pay obeisance to her, but the moment a woman asked for a vote, oh no, we can't have that. So they opposed at every turn. And the group called the Women's Social and Political Union was formed in 1903 by Emily Pankhurst and uh, her three daughters. And in 1905, they decided to do something sort of direct action, if you like. And when a gentleman you may have heard of called Winston Churchill stood in a by-election for the Liberal Party, he was a Liberal in those days, one of them stood up and said, would the Liberal Party give a vote to woman, women? And she was told to sit down. She stood up again and had a go. Um, the policeman came over and said, look, if you wait until question time, he will answer the question. So they waited, they put the question again. Uh, Churchill refused to answer it and walked away. So they went outside and started a row and finished up in prison. 
and they became the first suffragette martyrs. Further down the line, of course, when they went in to get more attention, they would go on hunger strike. And hunger strike meant forcible feeding, where three or four people would hold you down, and the tube would be put either down the nose or down the mouth, and the food would be forced in that way. It was excruciating, and all the reports, and you can find some of them in, in my book, um, are really kind of uh, uh, unnerving. And these were people of middle-class background, highly educated women. One of them, Lady Constance Lytton, was taken in, a woman with a, a very bad heart condition, and because she was a peer, she was given the light treatment. So next time there was a riot, she dressed up as a mill worker and called herself Jane Wharton and went in and was given the worst treatment of all and suffered badly, her health never recovered. Um, towards the end of the uh, period before the war, it became more and more orchestrated, the violence. One day they had a spree in the whole of the West End and smashed every window. Very much the sort of things that we see uh, places like uh, yesterday. And then the war came along and there was a truce. The suffragettes said, no, we will support the war effort. And as a result of what women in general did, of course, we have the vote given in 1918, but only for women over 30. Another 10 years before over 21 came into play. During that war, we had a number for the first time of conscientious objectors in the Great War. These were people who, for mostly reasons of pacifism or religion, uh, Quakers, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on, could not take another life or be involved in that. And they were hated by the prison warders, most of whom, of course, were ex-soldiers, who gave them a really bad time. Some of them were beaten to death, and, uh, but all of them were treated abysmally. Some were sent off with regiments and put into tents on their own, um, stripped naked and left in a tent uh, in the middle of the winter. And in one famous incident in 1916, 50 of them were taken over to France, paraded in front of the entire regiment, and the death sentence was read out. So these men had all this psychological torture and later on, somebody said, oh, by the way, it's been commuted to sentence in prison back in England. Uh, that was mentioned in the House of uh, Commons, um, and there was a, a huge hoo-ha in the paper. But the treatment of them was appalling and didn't end when they came out of prison, because they were socially ostracized, and if you were a teacher particularly, you could not get a job. So it really was a life sentence, you would say. Similarly, in the Second World War, we had conscientious objectors, far more of them, over 100,000 in fact, of whom 1,700 were women, because of course women were conscripted in the Second World War. And again, treated badly, but this time the government had learned its lesson. Conscription came in at the start, and it was gradated, as it were, throughout, and instead of being put in these awful prisons, they were given uh, a chance to go into what was called public works. So they might go off to Dartmoor and work in the quarries, or go off to some other places and uh, do work that was not related to to the war effort. Uh, a lady called Iris Radford from Cardiff, 18-year-old Jehovah's Witness, refused to work in, uh, a reception, as a receptionist in, in a, um, a hotel because the Bevin boys were there. The Bevin boys were brought in to uh, work in the mines, as you may remember, in the last war. Jim of Jim will fix it, oddly enough, was the Bevin boy. And she was sent to Cardiff prison for a month. Now here was a well-brought-up girl from a middle-class background, suddenly found herself slung into Cardiff prison uh, with prostitutes, and she'd never even heard the word venereal disease until she realized that she was the only person who didn't actually have it amongst most of the, uh, uh, the prisoners she dealt with. So once again, when she came out, she suffered all the things. Clifford Allen, who ran the one in the First World War, uh, was in prison, in Maidstone Prison, and found a way around the silence rule. When he went to empty his slops, and of course your only lavatory was the bucket in your thing, you queued up and you shoved it into the, uh, the sink, 
He and the man next to them exchanged words and they played chess on the walls of their cells and the man would say, pawn so-and-so moved to the right. They played chess, it became so popular, the entire group of conchies in the prison took part in a prison tournament. So there were ways of getting around it if you were clever enough. It's the sort of thing that uh, people had to, to do. And finally, we come to executions. Well, Samuel Johnson hated the idea that in 1783, Newgate became the place of execution. And you didn't have this wonderful um, procession where everybody could... And he used to say, the prisoners are comforted by it, and the people need um, excitement. And from then on, they were still in public. You could still see them, but in a very narrow area around Newgate Prison. And we then come to the awful character called William Calcraft, who for 45 years was the main executioner for London, uh, Middlesex, and all over the country. And he was just a sort of a bungling idiot. He hanged uh, a man called uh, Francois Couvoisier, who was a Swiss valet who killed his, uh, his master, and forgot to give him a long drop, which meant that he literally twitched away in front of this enormous crowd. In the crowd was William Makepeace Thackeray, who wrote a famous essay on it, being horrified about going to a hanging, and Charles Dickens. And if you read Charles Dickens' Barnaby Rudge, you find a scene very much like that, where somebody is hanged for a very a long time. A bit later, there was a double hanging, when a husband and wife uh, were hanged, again by the same man, Calcraft, uh, and a huge crowd turned up. We're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands, I think 40,000 on that occasion. People would pay vast amounts of money to sit on the roofs and in the... Uh, the windows of places overlooking there. And on this occasion, a letter was sent to the Times by Charles Dickens, which became a sort of focal point of uh, a lot of penal reform. And this went on and on and on, replaced by James Berry, who in some ways was a bit more organised. Again, a man who applied for the job without having ha not having hanged someone. He'd hanged uh, sides of meat, but that's not quite the same thing. So he began to make mistakes. And then he published a famous book of drops. The idea is to have someone going down and at the moment that the thing stops, it should break their neck. And if it's too long, of course, then they go all the way down. And uh, if it's too short, then you will cut them off, their heads off, which is what happened to him. And a famous occasion was when he tried to hang a man called John Lee, or John Babicom Lee, in Exeter Prison. And um, came in, gave him his sermon, put the hat on, pinioned his arms, put him on the trap, pulled the trap door, and nothing happened. So he jumped on it, and his assistant jumped on it, didn't open, right, get the guy off, stand him over there, get the water, pull the lever, it goes down, get someone to have a go at it with um, a chisel, and then basically bring the chap in for the second time, stand him on there, and pull the lever, nothing happens. They all jump on it. So we know exactly what this prisoner's thinking. We know what the hanged person is going to, because he's going through this experience with a thing over his, he can't see them, and his hands behind it. They then take him out, and they have a real go. They get down, they send people below, and they chip away at various things, and they try it time and time again, it works perfectly. So they bring him back in, and they stand him there. When he goes out, by the way, they take off the thing so he can see, and he notices that the chaplain is just about to collapse. You can imagine these people are all brought in, the, the witnesses. Comes back in, stands there again, and they pull the lever, and once again, it doesn't open. So John Lee, the man they couldn't hang, got away, was committed to a life sentence in uh, Portland Prison, and uh, he spent it. They came out and wrote, well, he ghosted his, uh, had his life story ghosted and uh, explained the horrors of the person um, about to be hanged, the, the, the mental torture, if you like, that goes with the, the whole process. Uh, because you know you're going to be hanged for a long time before it, it happens. The 20th century, of course, we come up against the name of Albert Pierpont from a family of executioners. His father 
was uh, sacked for being drunk on duty, and his uncle, Tom, was one of the great executioners of the day, and in fact, Albert worked with him. And Albert finished up, he wouldn't give a number, but over 400 people he hanged, men and women. Many of them were German uh, people who were convicted at Nuremberg, and he was doing them two at a time. Uh, women, one at the time, men, two at the time. Literally pull a lever and they'd both, both hang. And when he came back, of course, it became public that he was the executioner, and he became very famous in his little village. Uh, he used to run a pub called Help the Poor Straggler, would you believe? And then again, and towards the end of his life, he suddenly found opposition, which he'd never had before, because he began to hang people who didn't actually commit the crime for which they were hanged. He hanged Timothy Lee, uh, sorry, um, Timothy Evans, um, who was hanged for the murder of his wife and his daughter, and in fact, the other lodger, John Christie, had killed them, and uh, he was hanged three years later. Um, Ruth Ellis, he also hanged at Holloway, and the crowds got bigger and bigger, and he was jostled more and more, and eventually he, he, he retired. And by this stage, there was a huge buildup of uh, antagonism against the whole idea of uh, capital punishment, and eventually it was on the, uh, the stocks to be uh, abolished, and the last person to be hanged in this country, or the last two on the same day, were in 1864, and one of the uh, hangmen, the last of our hangmen, in fact, Harry Allen, um, used to say, I would come along, I would do the job, I'd kill them very quickly, I'd have a cup of tea, and on my way home, I would buy a newspaper to see whom I just hanged. And on that macabre note, ladies and gentlemen, I'll finish. Thank you. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. For more podcasts, please visit nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts.